This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And if you've been anywhere near a beach or a campsite in the last few years, you've probably noticed the high-end Yeti brand coolers just about everywhere. If you don't already own one yourself, that is. They're built to last. They work remarkably well. And no, they're not sponsors. The people behind these Yeti coolers are a family of entrepreneurs out of Austin, Texas. And they have an incredible story. Here's Jesse. Roger Cedars is a businessman and inventor. He quit his job as a high school teacher in the mid-70s to go full-time with his company, Flexcoat, which is still in business today. So it's no surprise that he passed on an innovative attitude to his sons, Yeti co-founders Roy and Ryan Cedars. But even though the entrepreneurial spirit resonates loudly, it's Roger's lessons on fatherhood that stand out as Roy and Ryan raise families of their own. Not bad, Ryan. For a 28-gauge. When Ryan was still wearing diapers, we'd have a thunderstorm. He would wake up, go look out the window before daybreak. When he was able to get outside, he'd take a little red wagon and a little net and go out in the ditches and uh, scoop up crawfish out of the ditches. There's just something in his blood that makes him want to hunt. If he was born 500 years ago, in Texas, and you had to survive, he could still survive. You know, there's something about that. I know those Comanches might get me. <laughs> <laughs> well. Hunting and fishing was our passion. I think some people would think we're over the top, but you, you have to have that passion first, and then you might stumble into something. We were into the outdoors, we were into the gear, and, and that's what eventually got us to Yeti. Boy had always said that ideas are like commodities, and, and they really are, unless you're hanging around someone like Roger or Roy who can bring them to life in front of you or take them to market. It was the, really the boat business that brought me to the cooler business. Cool. Everything about the boats I was putting together was high-end and durable and for fishing the Texas Gulf Coast the way we like to fish, except ordinary coolers. They weren't really matching the quality of the rest of the boat. And if you look back, everything led to the cooler business. Growing up out here in Driftwood, in the Texas Hill Country, we spent our entire days outside. We were running around with BB guns, and then eventually pellet guns, then eventually 22s. You know, our upbringing, our dad's small business, him wearing all the hats. We were always out getting our hands dirty, building stuff. I think that exposure, it was valuable. Growing up when we worked, we worked inside the business. Other kids were out there mowing lawns to make their summer money, and Ryan and I were building fishing rods. It was always flex kit. As long as we could remember. Yeah. That started out of his garage in Houston when we were probably, the, I think it was the same year I was born, and Ryan was three or four. If we can't find what we want, we make it. This is my business, this building here is 32 years old. Flexcoat, our number one product is we sell coatings to all the fishing rod companies. Almost every fishing rod made in the US, I would say 90% of them use our coating. We call this a lifestyle business. Everything we make, we make it for ourselves first and then we try to sell it. I just started making gadgets and anything related to building fishing rods and it just turned into a business. 
The reason Ryan and I were so fired up about starting our own small business was to have that lifestyle that my dad had. What we saw with our dad was he had a lot of free time and could do what he wanted to do. The same way he is with those kids as how he was with us. When I got off the bus at three o'clock, he'd drop everything he was doing in the business and be with us. He was engaged, he was hands-on, he was there, he was present. He always had a van around here. I drove it to the Florida Keys 13 times. We didn't have any money. We were living out of the van, sleeping during the daytime in 90 degrees, and then fishing at night below the bridges. It was a lot of fun. And I was kind of encouraged to do that kind of stuff by my dad. I think it teaches you some valuable skills in life. I always say, thank goodness for golf. <laughs> Get those guys off the water. <laughs> I am a true believer in starting your own business, and eventually you'll find a path. As my kids get older, that's one of my main goals is to try to figure out how to get that passion built up inside of them for doing your own thing. When I was becoming a dad, I thought naturally I was going to be a good dad like my dad, just because that's what I was exposed to. He set the bar pretty high, almost too high, where it's hard to duplicate for our kids. The most precious resource we have is time, and that's time with the family. It's different times. We have all these other distractions. The easy path is not the right path. It's harder to pull those electronics away from the kids, make them look out the window and see where you're going. The formula is being engaged, being present, and supportive. It's a lot easier to say it than actually do it. I tell you, that's the ultimate in my mind. Just find something you love and just stick with it. Yeti began to take off in 2011 when sales hit 29 million as word spread among the hardcore hunting and fishing crowd. In 2014, that figure hit 147 million. For 2015, Yeti closed in on 450 million in sales. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great piece. And by the way, that's the voice of the American dream there. Practical, sturdy, risk-takers, self-reliant. And it ain't made up, folks. It happens all over the country. We bring you stories like these because, well, the rest of the media doesn't. This is Lee Habib, Yeti's story, a great family story, here on Our American Stories.
Lovely Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love having authors on the show. And today we have Bruce Feiler, who writes the This Life column for the Sunday New York Times. He's also the author of six consecutive New York Times bestsellers. He's known for writing about what he's experienced in his new book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us, is no exception. Yeah, I'm the look. I'm the I'm the father of uh, soon to be a 13 year old identical girls. Uh, I have a working wife, and that means I spend a tremendous amount of time in my life <laughs> talking about what we all talk about, which is the changing roles of men and women. And like everybody else, I'm sort of trying to figure out uh, the rules of relationships. But so much of our contemporary dialogue is about you know technology and what's happening at the moment. But I spent a lot of time in the ancient world, right? I've written, you know, four books about the ancient world, Walking the Bible and Abraham. And I kept thinking, is there nothing from the past uh, that can't be uh, preserved as we talk about this today? Are we throwing out all the old rules? So my wife was on a business trip to Rome, and we decided to bring the girls along. At the time, they must have been about eight. And I'm the one who had the genius idea that, Let's take them on day one, jet-lagged, exhausted, to the Vatican, right? See some art, get some culture. <laughs> it did not go very well. Like, oh, our feet hurt, and why are there carpets on the wall, and why are all these naked statues here? So I'm like, come on, girls, we're going to go to the Sistine Chapel. So I push them, take them into the middle of the Sistine Chapel. I'm like, look up, I'm going to blow your mind. And they look up, and one of my daughters looks at that image that you mentioned. And by the way, that's an iconic image for a ton of reasons, not least to which no one had really shown God in his full body, the beard, all of that was actually new from uh, Michelangelo. And she looks up and she says, well, why are there only men in that picture? I was like, oh my word, uh, what am I in for? And then my other daughter looks up and says, well, wait a minute, is that, who is that under God's arm? Is that Eve? And I have to say, my mother is an art teacher, but I had never really noticed that about that figure before. And that's when I realized, oh, my gosh, one story has been at the center of men and women and relationships for 3,000 years, right? And for some, you know, it may be fact, for some, it may be science, whatever it is, this story has been there. And what if I look at this story and go back sort of on this great scavenger hunt across time, looking at the story of Adam and Eve, and maybe it can tell us, as crazy as it seems, something about relationships today. And you took your time on this book, as you always do, Bruce, and we love that. And it sounds like you had a heck of a time telling the story. You did a lot of traveling and a lot of geographic travel, but also time travel. Talk about both of those things. Well, I mentioned earlier that I had done Walking the Bible. And, and, and Walking the Bible, and I did it twice, once for the book and once for the PBS series. Walking the Bible was sort of a journey across um, a space, if you will, but in the same time period. As you know, I retraced the, the five books until I climb Mount Ararat in, uh, in Western, uh, excuse me, in Eastern Turkey, looking for Noah's Ark. I crossed the Red Sea. Um, I climbed uh, Mount Sinai. I tasted manna. And, but all of that was going to places in the ancient world, reading the stories and seeing what they could tell us today. It was pretty clear that there were not that many places to go <laughs> regarding Adam and Eve uh, in the ancient world. I've actually been to the Garden of Eden in Iraq, um, and that story is recounted in the first love story. Um, so, but what really allowed me to sort of, because I'm an, I'm really an adventure person. I'm an, I'm an experientialist, I like to say, because I like to go places. And so what really, 
um, unlocked it was realizing that this story, every significant artistic and creative figure in history, and every generation has grappled with this story. So when I realized I could go to Jerusalem, I could go to the Sistine Chapel, I could go to the Galapagos, where even Darwin confronted uh, this story. I could go in the footsteps of Milton in London with Paradise Lost. I could go to Hollywood, where Mae West made this incredible, iconic rendition of Adam and Eve on radio that was totally scandalous in the 1920s. And so I basically, this was a journey, not just across space, but also across time, looking at how this story has been reimagined by every generation. And by looking at the story, we can really understand the history of love and that legacy that we all carry today. Let's talk about that original story in the Old Testament, that Adam and Eve story, and how, how you believe that story got altered by man over time, by men over time. So the first thing to say about the story of Adam and Eve is that it's not one story. It's actually two stories. And the second story in some ways has the iconic uh, incident that we think about with Adam and Eve. We have that's the creation of of Eve from the rib of Adam, although it's not really the rib, it's actually the side. Um, it, that's got the scene with the apple, but it's not really an apple, it's just called the fruit. That's got the, the scene where they're kicked out of Eden, but they're not really kicked out because God still extends his love. Cain and Abel, and onward. And that's the story that most of us think about. But there's actually an earlier story in Genesis 1 where God creates man and woman in a, in a sort of a non-gendered, uh, unified creation and then divides them in two. And the reason that's important is in the first story, they begin with total equality. Uh, what's true for the man is also true for the woman. That's been lost over time for a lot of reasons, but the primary reason is basically organized religion got a hold of the story. And by organized religion, I should say, I mean men got a hold of the story and kind of used the story as a way to dump on Eve. I, I think of this story as uh, uh, poor Adam and Eve. They are victims of the greatest character assassination the world has ever known. And basically, they, you know, sort of history basically me tooed Eve and sort of made her the scapegoat. And what happened over time is that first artists and then creative people, Michelangelo, uh, I mentioned John Milton, uh, Mary Shelley, and Frankenstein, and then the modern you know, women's movement kind of reclaimed Eve and kind of restored her to the role. Because kind of one of the, one of the kind of things that always fascinates me about, about contemporary religion is, is that it was controlled by men and they used it to, to, to basically subjugate women. But now, by every measure, women are more religious than men. And the only way that was going to happen was for women to basically reclaim the story and see themselves in the story, and that began with Adam and Eve. So basically, I, I see this as the original story, which has this equality, centuries of subjugation of women um, uh, at the hands of organized religion, and then a slow, centuries-long reclaiming of the story so that Adam and Eve can stand as equals today, and as I sort of alluded to earlier, kind of in critical role models for how we might relate to each other at this time, this kind of you know, challenging time, and how men and women relate to each other. Now, a lot of folks don't think the Adam and Eve story started too well. You've already talked about the two stories even more, but a lot of people don't think it ended well. Talk about the ending, because in the end, I think this is what you focus on. It's a magnificent story, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. I, I think that one of the, you know, one of the things I see in the story, um, I, I refer to it as constancy. I, I see Adam and Eve starting together. I mentioned earlier that they were created together. 
then they separate, right? Eve is not happy. She's, whether, you know, she's bored, she's frustrated, whatever it might be, she goes off into, uh, she goes off into the garden and she tastes of the fruit. And at that moment, she can separate if she wants, right? Milton has a great scene in, uh, in Paradise Lost where Eve, upon eating the fruit, says, uh, oh my gosh, I have all the power. This would be an incredible win for women, the female sex, if I keep this power to myself. And then she says, oh, but I love Adam so much. I miss him. I can't live without him. So she goes back. I see that as a separation and then a returning, okay? And then um, what does Adam do? He has this choice. Should he eat or should he not eat? He knows pretty well. He knows very well that he's not supposed to do this, but he's like, he chooses love, right? He chooses Eve over God, so to speak. He eats too, another coming together. And then they're kicked out of Eden, okay? At this moment, they could separate. The story could, like, die right there. But they stick together. They have a, they have a child. Then they have a second child, so they have Cain and Abel. So, you know, we, we should remember, they're not just the first lovers and the first couple and the first love story, as the title of my book suggests, but they're also the first parents. Um, that doesn't go very well, right? One of their children kills the other. They could be separated. And in fact, there is a period of separation. Uh, the text is very clear on this, but they come back together, they reconcile, and they have a third son, Seth. And it's that Seth that goes on to populate the human line and sort of get the biblical story going. That is a story of separation coming back together, separation coming back together, that I think that they deserve credit for and is an incredible inspiration because as anybody, anybody who's been in a relationship longer than a weekend knows it doesn't always go well. And this act of reconciliation is something I think we can all learn from today. And when we come back, more with Bruce Feiler, his terrific book, one of the great or the greatest love story ever told, the first love story, Adam, Eve, and us, here on Our American Stories. Turn with Bruce Feiler and his new book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us. And Bruce, I want to quote from the book. The story of Adam and Eve has a similar oscillating quality, especially in the chords of the birth of their third child. Their lives contain a particular quality of love that's rarely sung out loud, duration. Students of infatuation, that period of intense awareness and obsessive immersion that often characterizes the initial phase of relationship, say it lasts a matter of months. And you go on to then talk about this difference between the infatuation phase and, of course, constancy. You cite Dorothy Tenov. Who is she and why did you look at her work along with Helen Fisher? 
Well, I think that, you know, Dorothy Kellogg back in the 1970s was the first person to write about that period of titillation and how kind of infatuation and how it's a it's a short-term thing and then it passes in as Alan Fisher has said into a kind of a a kind of a long-term uh give and take. I mean, Alan uh Helen Fisher said something quite interesting to me. She's an anthropologist who sort of put people in brain scan machines to to look at, at who've been in long-term relationships and 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 she talked about 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 how the people who were in successful relationships learn to have give and take, learn that they are in a, a shared story, um, if you will. And I think that what matters here about this, so my book is called The First Love Story, right? And I think that um, I, I feel in a profound way that Adam and Eve introduced the idea of love into the Western world. It doesn't begin in, you know, France, as we were told, or the Middle Ages, or even in Greece, as some people say. It begins in the Hebrew Bible. And yet the Bible does not get credit for this, and people don't think of this as a love story. I think the reason that we don't is not because we misidentify the story, but because we misidentify what love is, right? So the modern kind of love story, the Hollywood love story, the love song, uh, the pop song that's three-minute love story is usually about that period of the tingles, right? It's about that period of self-discovery and infatuation when the chemicals are going crazy and you think everything is perfect before you, you realize that love is something different, right? So love is a long-term story. And you mentioned the word oscillation when you were reading that passage. So I, you know, this may take me a second to unfold, but a couple of years ago, I met some psychologists at Emory who had done research into how children understand themselves. And basically what they found is that children who understand uh, their family history, which is to say they give kids a, a 21 question survey of do you know where your grandparents were born? Do you know a relative who had cancer? Do you have, do you know what happened when your parents met and what was happening around the time of your birth? And the children who answered these questions better had a higher degree of, of self-confidence and self-esteem and a belief that they could control the world around them. And when I asked uh, the psychologists who did this study, one of them is Marshall Duke, I asked Marshall why this would be the case he said that there are three types of family narratives. There's what they call an ascending narrative. You know, we started out with nothing, we worked hard, we have a lot. There's a descending narrative. We had a lot, then there was a war or a recession or a storm, and we lost it all. Or there's what they call an oscillating narrative with ups and downs, with swings, with natural rhythms of success and failure. Your grandfather came here. He worked very hard. Um, he, his, uh, but then his house burned down. His daughter was the first woman in the family to go to college. Then she got breast cancer. So children who understand that their, that their, the history, their lives, their families have an oscillating narrative understand that when they hit bumps in the road, that they can get through them. I wrote about this in, in the New York Times in a piece called The Stories That Bind Us. And, you know, I've written 15 books and hundreds of newspaper and magazine articles. It's the thing that most went viral um, in my entire writing career as people found themselves in this story. And that's why I used that word oscillating in the conjunction with Adam and Eve, because the story is oscillating. It's not an ascending narrative of they meet and it's all so wonderful and they go, you know, and there was some, you know, kooky little things and then they got to the altar and lived happily ever after. That's not what happened to Adam and Eve, and that's not what happens to any good relationship. Indeed. I want to quote further, quote, 
Adam and Eve asserted by their very actions that love is not just union. It is reunion. It includes, by its very endurance, some element of choice, and it encompasses, by its very survival, the necessity of progress. There is no love without time, and there is no love without respect for the other. And to have that, you must see the other not as higher or as lower. You must see the other as your equal. That's beautiful words, and that's straight out of the first real biblical story of love. And yet, and yet we don't see it that way. And, and you, you brought up uh, the Cain and Abel moment, which I think is an equally powerful thing. Right? This is a deeply troubling, disturbing, sad, grief-stricken moment, right? One of their children has murdered the other child. And I, I you know, suggest if, you, you know, if, we, if we ask for a show of hands of anyone listening to this conversation of what losing a child does to a relationship, most people would say that it destroys the relationship. And what's fascinating is that that turns out not to be true. Uh, I spoke to a scholar who looked at 25,000 families who had lost children in the Northwest, including a lot who'd lost them in the Mount St. Helens volcano. And uh, it, it turned out that only a handful of them broke up. And when I asked her why, she said, because each party is grief-stricken after the loss of a child, and they're tending themselves, and they're so busy tending themselves that they often are not good at tending the other person. But after a while, they look across the table, and they realize the only person who can understand what they're going through is sitting right across from them. And she used this beautiful language. She said that basically what they do is they write a new chapter in their lives. And that's really what I learned from all this time with Adam and Eve, which is that love is a story we tell with another person. It's co-creation through co-narration. I think of the scene in Hamilton uh, when, let's remember what happened, when the second act of Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton has had an affair on Eliza, and they're estranged, and then their son, Philip, is killed in a duel. And the most beautiful song, to my ear, in the entire musical is, is what happens after. It's called It's Quiet Uptown. The two of them, they are estranged, they come together, they start taking long walks. They go into the garden. <laughs> they move uptown. And they realize in the end that they're the only ones who can understand. And there's this beautiful um, thing at the end of that song where the cast sings, you know, forgiveness. Can you imagine? I mean, losing a child is unimaginable. And the only thing that is a big enough response is an act of imagination. And that's what I see Adam and Eve doing. And that's what I see just speaking to, as I said, any of us in a relationship, I'll be married 15 years uh, this summer, and my relationship, like everybody I know, requires this constant act of imagination of, it's not just a commitment that you make, it's a stream of commitments, and, you know, a healing of breaches, and that's a skill that any long-term relationship uh, demands. Indeed. In fact, uh, one of the great movies of the 80s was about, well, the opposite of what you just said. It was Ordinary People, if you remember, based on the book. And that couple broke apart because of the death of his son, um, which, again, that's the outlier. The movie, I think, made it seem as if maybe that was more the norm. Um, but it, it may have resonated for that individual and particular family. And when we come back, more with Bruce Feiler, the first love story, Adam, Eve, and us here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to Our American Network and sign up for our newsletter. It's just an email, folks. 
You send us the email, we'll send you our five best stories of the week in transcript form and a link to the podcast as well. This is Lee Habib. More with Bruce Filer after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our conversation with Bruce Filer, author of the first love story, Adam, Eve, and Us, and it's available on Amazon.com. Go there, pick it up. You won't put this book down. You take a walk through literary history, too, Bruce, and you mentioned Milton before, and I don't know how we can understand literary history without reading the Bible and knowing it, but one story caught my attention, and it was Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein, and it was, I guess, her rebuttal to Adam and Eve in a way? Well, first of all, um, am I the last person who knew that Frankenstein was an Adam and Eve story? But Frankenstein is an Adam and Eve story, right? So, you know, it's interesting. We know the origin story of that, right? You've got Byron, you've got Shelley, uh, who was having this relationship with um, Mary. She wasn't Shelley yet, but Mary Shelley, and they all end up... uh, you know, in, in, uh, by Lake Geneva, and it's a stormy night, they say, let's all tell ghost stories. And, uh, it was not the most successful parlor game, but it's out of that that Frankenstein came. And so what is the story of Frankenstein? You've got Dr. Frankenstein. So, um, he creates this new being. So Dr. Frankenstein in the Adam and Eve of it all is God. And the monster, if you will, is, if that's what we want to call him, is Adam. And then what happens is, is that the monster, you know, gets estranged from Dr. Frankenstein and is frustrated, and he goes running off into the Alps. And so what, he's in the Alps, and they need him to be able to communicate with Dr. Frankenstein. So he, begin, he, he observes this couple in a house, and what is happening? The couple, um, the caretaker is reading to the patient, uh, Paradise Lost. So the monster overhears and learns to speak English by listening to Paradise Lost, which, by the way, may not be the best way (laughs) to learn basic grammar, but it's a pretty good way to learn eloquent English, right? So, and then, so the monster is listening to the creature, whatever you want to call him, is listening to this and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm Adam. And so the monster goes traipsing back to Dr. Frankenstein and says, make me a woman. I'm Adam. I'm alone, right? That's the key thing. And the entire story, one of the reasons this story resonates today is that when Adam is by himself, Adam looks up plaintively toward God and God says, it's not right for humans to be alone. So they're like, so Adam says, God says, I have to make you a companion. And that's where we get Eve from. So the monster says, make me an Eve. And Frankenstein says, well, no, I don't want to do that. Like, it's enough trouble with you already. 
And so then Frankenstein, the monster begins to sort of start attacking everyone that Dr. Frankenstein loves. And he then says, okay, fine, I'm going to create you this Eve. And, and then, and, and the monster says, yeah, we'll go away. We'll go back basically, you know, into the, into the garden of Eden. And it all goes horribly wrong. So it, it's fascinating. And I think what's interesting about that is this is exactly at the moment that science is beginning to take over, right? Soon we have Darwin. Soon we have sort of the beginning of the decline of the influence of the Bible. And yet this suggests that this story is bigger. Um, I mean, what's bigger than the Bible? It's almost hard to believe anything can be. And yet Adam and Eve transcends even the decline of religion, because it's such an iconic human story and basically part of our cultural DNA. Indeed. And by the way, isolation uh, is, a, is, a, is a plague on, on Americans today and loneliness. And, and I've read this in the Times and the Wall Street Journal. Actually, well, we know what a problem it is in the country. And in, in some aspect, you had said it before, you know, God, at least the God we know from the Bible, didn't want us to be alone. And this story is, is a big part of that, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it's the, to me the great insight in the story, um, and and that is really profound. We know from uh, you know the last twenty years of positive psychology, from happiness research, that that happiness is other people, right, and that relationships are central to our well-being. The biggest scourge, as you said, is loneliness. Whether it's teen suicide, adult suicide, opioids. You know, technology isolating us. We know that, that that loneliness has become a modern health uh, uh, epidemic, and uh, within that, we need relationships. You look at the story. There it is in Genesis one, where God says it's not right for humans to be alone. God. The Bible gets there 3,000 years before modern social science. So if you think that science has basically rendered the Bible moot, you're missing the point. And frankly, if you're the kind of person who thinks the Bible has every answer, I think you're also missing the point. Here's where the Bible, where religion and science talking to each other can give us an even deeper insight into how we all live. Indeed, they're not mutually opposites, and the antagonism proposed between the two, I think, has always been a false construct. Let's talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote. It's one of my favorites. He was writing a letter to his niece, and he wrote this, quote, It is not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on the marriage that will sustain your love. Uh, talk about that quote, because I, I, I thought of it when I was reading your book. Well, that's a, uh, a beautiful thought, and I, I, I think that... <laughs> You know, there was such, for so many years in religion, there was a, there was a <laughs> distinction between, uh, you know, beliefs and deeds. And I, I think what I hear in that that's related there is the act of doing, the act of sustaining the relationship is also an act of love. I quote in, in, in the book, as you know, that wonderful scene in, uh, in, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> right? So we've got Tevia and his wife who had had an arranged marriage, shall we not forget? And they want arranged marriage with the matchmaker, 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 make me a match of their daughters. But of course, then the daughters, you know, one by one, want a love match. And it's such a crisis for Tevia. And there's this moment where he goes to his wife and he says, you know, look at the kids, look at our daughters. They're like all talking about love and like, um, uh, what about that? Like, do you love me? And she kind of squawks back, do I love you? What are you talking about? You know, don't bother me. She's like, he's like, do you love me? And, and she says, I did your laundry, I, you know, I, I, ma I made your clothes, I made your bed, I made your food. You know, if, if that's not love, what is? And I, I think that that's great, right? That, that, I was going to say they don't make movies about that, but of course, 
they do make movies about that now because that is what that story is about. That love takes all different forms, and there is sometimes the act an act of reconciliation, which may not be uh, a, a flowers and champagne. You know, an act of of, of balance, uh, an act of letting each other take the lead. I think that's also great in the Adam and Eve story, right? You know, he, she's created from his rib, but he's the one who clings to her, right? She initiates. He initiates the lovemaking that produces the children, but she gives them their name, and that's the source of power in the ancient world. So there's a wonderful back and forth. There's a wonderful constancy, as we were talking earlier. There's wonderful reconciliation and lots of simple, small wins and small gestures that have kept this relationship alive, basically, for 3,000 years. Indeed. Let's return to where we started at, at the Sistine Chapel. You had a conversation there with an art historian and it was beautiful. You asked her what we can learn from Adam and Eve, and she said this, quote, that we're made for love, that's what the initial image shows. We're made out of love, and we're made for love. Talk about that. You know, our human, why do we have love? Why do we need love, right? Animals don't have love, um, almost all of them. Uh, But we have it, why? Because it is valuable to keep people together, to raise families, to create culture, because the family is the backbone of our lives, um, because it's what holds our civilization together, because we might all spin out and do what's best for me, what's best for me, what's best for me. The scourge of individualism is the other side of the loneliness. We all think we can go it alone. and But going alone is challenging. And I think that we have love because... It binds people together. It's good for raising children. It's good for our society. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not all roses and champagne as we've been talking. But I think that what this story reminds us is that this is the first human story. All of the stories in the ancient world, they had a God, and a God created humans, or a God and a human. The the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, is the first book that has a man and a woman with a name with at the at the origins of the human line. And the fact that there is a story associated with that, and the story itself has ups and downs, reminds us that we need love, that love is difficult, but that when it triumphs, it's good for everybody involved. Indeed, and there was free will in that garden, right? And there were choices and agency. Talk last about both of those things. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm working on a book now. Um, I've been interviewing hundreds of people about their life stories, uh, people who've had transitions and disruptions and reinventions, and I'm doing this thing I call it the Life Story Project, where I'm gathering stories, and it's really about how we live a meaningful life, and there are what I call the ABCs of meaning. <laughs> the first is agency, and for sure Adam and Eve have that, right? Eve goes off. She eats that fruit. Adam eats that fruit. They, they have consequence. They have those children. They come together and have the third child. There's a lot of agency. That's the A of the ABCs of meaning. The B is belonging, and this relationship is all about belonging, connection, love, and its cause, and something higher than yourself. And I think that that's also here in this story. Not only do they have this relationship with God, but also, in a sense, their higher calling is to make it work, <laughs> is to survive, is to have children, is to come back together in the face of awfulness and have that third child, and he's the one who populates the human line. In the biblical account, none of us would be here if it weren't for that third child, Seth. So it reminds us that we all need the ABCs. We need think agency ourselves, we need relationships, and we need something bigger and higher than ourselves. 
This is Lee Habib, and we've been talking to Bruce Filer, his terrific book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us. Pick it up at Amazon.com. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. All we need is your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week in transcript form and in audio form. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we talk about all different types of subjects here on the show, and we especially love to tell stories of small businesses and startups. And today, Faith brings us one that started right here in Mississippi. Water Valley is a magical little town. It's super small, and it's super quaint, and it's, I've literally, like, I've never been in, well, there's a few places I've been, but I feel like that's that's one of the, the places that I've been where you really, like, you go and then you drive down Main Street and you feel like you've been, you, you take a step back in time many, many years. The other day I found myself wanting to do something a little different than my normal schedule. So I hopped in my car and drove about 20 or 30 minutes away from Oxford, Mississippi, all the way to Water Valley a small town of about 3,500. And exactly who was the voice that we were just listening to? She is the owner of the newest shop in town. It's called Heartbreak Coffee. I'm Gretchen Williams. I'm 31 years old. I live in Oxford, Mississippi. Grew up in Kansas City. Um, After high school, uh, I came to college at Ole Miss, and so I ended up in Oxford. I was here for four years. My last semester of college, I, well, I was studying exercise science, and I had to do an internship, and that's what took me out to Southern California. I worked for the city of Long Beach in the Department of Health. Once I graduated college, I, well, I hated what I was doing out there, but I loved being out there, so I decided I, I wanted to stay. Didn't know what I wanted to do with, with my degree or with my life, and so I Googled on my phone coffee shop because I thought that that would be an easy temporary job until I figured out what I wanted to do. There was one within walking distance from my house that I had just moved into in Seal Beach, California. So I walked down there, waited around for about 20 minutes for the, the owner to come in and ended up getting hired on the spot and working that day. But that's actually how I ended up working in coffee. And so I was out in California for about seven years working in a whole bunch of different coffee shops. And that's when the obsession with coffee began. About 
four years ago is when I started Heartbreak. Yeah, so I had been working in several different coffee shops since I'd graduated college. My voice cracks a lot, too, because I'm still going through puberty at 31. After working in, in a coffee shop, I, I mean, it was something that I really fell in love with and I became passionate about. Something that I decided, you know, I wanted to pursue and, like, do for the rest of my life, which is difficult to make a career out of coffee unless you, like, own your own shop or have your own roastery. Um, it's, you know, it's not that easy making minimum wage and tips as a barista and, and living off of that. If that were possible, that would be fantastic, but um, it's not. Yeah, I kind of came to that realization one afternoon and kind of started thinking about different things that, that I could do and that I was passionate about. And Coffee was really the only... I had dabbled in several different things, but that was the one thing that kind of always stuck out to me that, you know, I, di I really did love and I was really a nerd about. I was kind of naturally good at. So that same day, I decided to go online and buy this little half-pound tabletop coffee roaster. And I had never roasted my own beans. <laughs> I had never worked in a coffee shop that had roasted their own beans, so I had no idea what I was doing. But it was something for me to kind of do on the side to continue to, to, to fuel this passion that I had. And um, once I ended up getting that roaster in and, you know, my first batch of green beans, I messed a lot of them up pretty, pretty good. Um, I made the mistake of roasting beans and then taking them right out of the roaster and trying them. And they're terrible. They have to degas for a little while. And uh, like usually about 48 hours. Um, so never eat coffee beans right out of the roaster because it's disgusting. <laughs> but, you know, slowly like some of them started tasting, you know, started tasting better and better. And there was, I was reading a lot about the, the topic. My girlfriend at the time, you know, saw my interest and my passion in it. And she was very encouraging of what I was doing. And um, she's a very talented artist and so she came up with the name heartbreak which was kind of an homage to everything i had been through like on my coffee journey at that point and just kind of this idea of like you know turning i don't know like all things like bittersweet you know and turning like the negative into a positive and that's kind of what heartbreak became for me and it wasn't even supposed to be it wasn't even supposed to be business at the beginning it wasn't ever a business at the beginning and that just kind of happened I was roasting out of my own kitchen and like I said my girlfriend at the time she ended up coming up with the name and then drawing the logo which is still the logo now and we made an Instagram and it was you know just something that was for fun and about two months after, you know, I started roasting, started getting some coffees that tasted, you know, what I thought was pretty decent. And so I had about 13 people over into my backyard and uh, we did like a little cupping. And I was like, well, I just want somebody else to try it because I think it tastes decent. But, you know, what do people who, you know, don't really know much about coffee think about it? I made these like little cards these little like scorecards for everybody to like write down and like take notes and I had four different single origin coffees I had everybody like rank them like you know what they thought was the best and then to what they thought was the worst like one through four and it was funny because um at the time you know I had like 
a definite like, oh, this is the best coffee, this is the second best, this is the third best, this is definitely the worst. And when I got back those cards at the end of the night, it was like, you know, three people put this one number one, three people put this one number one, three people put this one number one. And it helped me learn, you know, a, a good lesson from the beginning of like, obviously, like everybody has different tastes and you know, to be successful in this business or anything. Like, not that you can always cater to everybody, but like, I knew from the beginning, if I only catered to like my taste, then that would be wrong. Indeed, and when we come back, Gretchen Williams' story, Heartbreak Coffee's story, our American Dreamer series. We love these stories of small businesses. Many of them become big, some of them stay small. But it's part of this culture, part of our great country. And when we come back, Gretchen's story continues. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues. And this one, Gretchen Williams, right here in our own backyard, Heartbreak Coffee, Water Valley, Mississippi, a beautiful small town in a beautiful part of the country. And we're just about an hour south of Memphis, tucked in the hill country of Mississippi, not far from the Delta where, where the Delta Blues started. And let's now return to Gretchen's story. Literally... Two and a half years of my life went by and we were in the process of, we had a successful Kickstarter that we raised, you know, money on and we were in the process of opening up a shop in downtown Long Beach. Like it kind of was all a blur from like month three until two and a half years later when, like I said, we had, we had signed a lease on a place in downtown Long Beach. Um, we were set to open up a shop, uh, a shop in Roastery the lease was already signed, and then things fell through. At that point, it was kind of the first time that, like, everything in that business came to a halt. And it was the first time that I was like, you know what? I kind of just, like, it's good, and I just need to, like, sit back for a second and decide the direction that I want to take this company instead of letting, you know, this company take me the direction that it was going. So I actually kind of put everything on the back burner for about nine months. And, it, you know, part of it, too, is just the fact that, like, it was super defeating. You know, I just had to rethink things. And I ended up getting a job working for Blue Bottle up in Venice Beach, which I knew that heartbreak was something that I wanted to do. You know, that was kind of my baby that I created. Uh, it was actually on my 30th birthday, which was June 30th of uh, 2016. I had decided that, like, as much as I loved being in California, I was getting older and, like, you know, I wanted to have a little bit slower paced, more affordable life, and heartbreak was still something that I wanted to do. And actually, Oxford and Water Valley had always been in the back of my mind um, as far as 
you know, someplace that even if I had had a shop in California, I always wanted to come back here um, and open up a shop too. I mean, a college town and it's pretty untouched as far as like specialty coffee goes. So I always thought that, you know, what I was doing would be well received here. And so I had a 16 foot U-Haul packed up with the back of my roaster in the back of that, which is like 350 pounds. It's not easy to move. Yeah, I drove with my two dogs and my roaster and, and uh, you know, the rest of my U-Haul from California to Oxford. I was like, this is what I'm going to, you know, this is what I'm going to do now. He was back in town, and it was time to figure out what the heck it was that she was going to do next. So once I got back to Oxford, I, I started doing, which I didn't mention before, but I had a sev- I bought a 79 Volkswagen bus, and this was before that... Yeah, I had signed a lease on a place out in California, and part of the reason was, you know, real estate's so expensive out there. And I'd gone on Craigslist, and I had I had sold my my Jeep Wrangler at the time, and I decided that it was a smart investment to get a 1979 Volkswagen bus. It wasn't necessarily, but. <laughs> It looks cute, but yeah, painted the logo on the side, and and that's kind of the vessel that we used um, to do pop-ups and stuff like that out in California, and had my bus shipped out here, uh, and I decided, you know, I would basically kind of do the same route. But what is it about coffee that she loves so much? I think at first it was just being, like, in coffee shops. You know, the interactions that you get with people, your regulars, your just random folks that you get coming in, but... You're creating something that's that's so small and like so the most like simplistic thing really. But like it's a huge part of somebody's day and it really can like make or break it and and, and I love like I love being a part of that and I think that's what you know, you see you see a lot in coffee shops too. You know, you see these interactions between people and I mean you see people fall in love and you see people break up and you see, you know, people come together of different walks of life and it's 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 just a really like kind of magical space. But then followed the interest into the science behind the coffee. After working in coffee for a couple of years, I went I went up to LA and and I had uh, my first cappuccino at a specialty coffee shop and it was Intelligentsia in Silver Lake, and I remember just kind of being blown away and thinking like, why in the world does this taste so much better than what I'm making in my, in my shop? Not only fell in love with the cafe aspect of it, which I already very much enjoyed, but then just kind of became a coffee nerd. It feels inadequate to say that Gretchen loves coffee. But she does have a good enough head on her shoulders to know that everybody's tastes are different. Just like she learned in that first tasting in her backyard. There's this lack of bridge kind of between specialty coffee and and customer service. You know, you walk into a lot of these specialty shops and they don't even put out cream or sugar because they're like, oh, my coffee is the best and, and it's roasted to perfection and you shouldn't have to add anything. Like, you have to drink it like this or, you know, we don't have syrup flavors because you, you know, you shouldn't have to add anything to your coffee, which, like, I I get the understanding of it. I get why being a purist, like, you know, that's that's our job is, like, you know, a creator of, of coffee and as a roaster to highlight these natural, you know, notes and nuances within these beans. And like, so again, like, you know, you feel like you've created something and you don't want somebody to ruin it. What matters just as much as having a, a quality product is having 
the customer have an enjoyable experience with that product. I literally cannot care if somebody wants black coffee or if they want like a little bit of coffee with their cream in the morning. Like if they're enjoying it, then I've done my job. She just wants to make something that brings people together. And she felt the best place to do that was in Mississippi. And maybe living in the big cities is not all it's cracked up to be. Well, at least for Gretchen. Has decided that small town America is what she calls home. Ended up being approached uh, about a space down in Water Valley and, and now have a roastery and a coffee shop down in Water Valley, Mississippi, which is crazy, but amazing. And everything has worked out exactly how it needs. And I think, you know, things are things are only going to go up from here, hopefully. Maybe not because the name's heartbreak, so who knows. <laughs> from her backyard in California to a VW bus in Mississippi and now a storefront in Water Valley. It's funny, one of... A story that I have about Water Valley was my ex-girlfriend who started this, well, who started Heartbreak with me, she's half Costa Rican, half Peruvian. And her grandmother, her grandmother's from Peru, lives in Peru, but she'll, she'll come over and she'll she'll stay with them in California for six months and then go back uh, to Peru for six months. And when I say Peru, it's not like, you know, it's not like she doesn't live in a big city. She lives like up in the mountains on this farm, like makes cheese and has like goats. When she came several years ago, it was probably... I don't know, four or five years ago, um, she actually came to Oxford. She, we went to Water Valley, and we took we took her grandmother, so this, you know, 70-some-year-old Peruvian lady to Water Valley, Mississippi. And we had, you know, she had been all over California, and we had taken her all over Oxford. We go to Water Valley, and of all places in Water Valley, we go to Piggly Wiggly, which <laughs> is, you know, this this small little grocery store, and, and outside of Piggly Wiggly, there are two picnic bitches in in the parking lot, and they're old and, like, rotted. And, I mean, you know, if you touch them, you'll get a splinter. They're in terrible shape. But they have this chocolate pudding in the deli section of Piggly Wiggly. So we went there, and we got this chocolate pudding, and we were sitting out at these picnic tables, and it was hot and humid outside. I mean, literally everything about this picture was, like, miserable. And her grandma's eating this pudding and, like, looking out into the scenery of the Piggly Wiggly parking lot, which doesn't have much to offer, I can promise you that. And all of a sudden, she says in Spanish, and she says, this is living. And I was like, dang, grandma just dropped some truth. (laughs) Like, you're absolutely right. Like, it's, and that's something that's, like, always stuck with me about Water Valley. And, and still to this day, that's, that's, that's how I feel about Water Valley. And, like, I want to incorporate that, like, into the shop somehow, like, make some sort of sign or something that says this is living. But I love that. And I love how, like, you know, it's the simplest things. But, like, just being able, you know, again, like, to relax and, like, have good food and, like, good company. And, like, that's all you need in life. Like, that, Water Valley, this is living. And, and I think she kind of grasp a perfect picture of like what Water Valley, Mississippi is. Good food, good company. And now that heartbreak is there, a great cup of coffee. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Gretchen Williams, her little piece of heaven on earth in Water Valley, Mississippi. This is living, folks. And there are so many ways to live here in this great country. And so many small business owners a part of the American dream brings so much value 
and so much that we all care for in our small towns and our big towns. Gretchen's story here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and right now we're going to tell you the story of the show All in the Family. According to the Wall Street Journal in its heyday, this show was watched regularly by nearly one-third of all Americans. Before its last of nine seasons and 212 episodes, the show had delivered six of the top 50 highest rated television programs of all time. This is the story of All in the Family. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. It was doomed from the start. The social satire television show called All in the Family was seen as too abrasive and failed to pull any punches. Carol O'Connor played the blue-collar bigot Archie Bunker. The show's creator, Norman Lear, inclined O'Connor for the combination of bombast and sweetness the actor exuded on the big screen. O'Connor believed in the character, but not in the show's chances to succeed on television. Here's Rob Reiner. We knew he had a good show, but we figured it wouldn't last very long because it was so special, it was so different. Um, I remember Carol saying, you know, we'll probably do four episodes and then we'll probably get thrown off the air because nobody's going to sit still for this. When Norman Lear invited Gene Stapleton to read for the Edith role, Archie's wife, she couldn't get over the script. This on TV? I was terribly amused by it, by its reality and honesty and humor. CBS signed on for the pilot episode. O'Connor and Stapleton were joined by Sally Struthers, who played Archie's daughter, Gloria, and Rob Reiner, who played Mike Stivick, Gloria's husband. Rob had grown up surrounded by his comic genius father and his friends. Men like Mel Brooks, Sid Caesar, Dick Van Dyke. Says Rob, that was my kindergarten, and they were my teachers. Norman Lear, a friend of Rob's father, Carl, had known Rob for over a decade. There had even been one day when Lear stopped by Reiner's house that Rob made him laugh with a routine about cheating at Jack's. Noted Lear to Carl Reiner, you've got a funny kid there. Rob's father responded, get out of here, he's not a funny kid. Years later, Carl Reiner expanded on this exchange. Oh, I knew the kid was funny. What I didn't know until a long time later was that he had talent. On the evening of January 12th, 1971, as soon as Hee Haw went off the air, All in the Family made its television premiere. This is what America heard at the start of the program. Warning. 
The program you are about to see is All in the Family. It seeks to throw a humorous spotlight on our frailties, prejudices, and concerns. By making them a source of laughter, we hope to show in a mature fashion just how absurd they are. Here's Sally Struthers. I heard that they manned all the CBS stations across the country with extra operators to take all the angry phone calls that were going to come in from people seeing the show, and it didn't happen. They got a lot of phone calls, but people were calling in and saying, What was that? Is that coming back? In the weeks following All in the Family's debut, CBS initiated and financed an opinion poll. The majority of the people questioned, including minority group members, indicated that they hadn't been offended. People who saw it discussed it, and people who hadn't discussed it anyhow. Bunker gives conservatives a bad name. Stivic gives liberals a bad name, were the typical responses. Here's show creator Norman Lear. The stern warning that began our show tonight was used on the first six episodes of All in the Family. Nervous CBS censors required us to warn viewers, lest they be offended by the bunkers. They didn't have bothered. Hardly anyone watched. It was in the summer reruns that you found the show, and it caught on. By the second season, All in the Family had become a certified hit. In May of 1972, All in the Family swept the Emmy Awards. Johnny Carson dubbed the ceremonies an evening with Norman Lear. Here's a clip of Archie Bunker and his son-in-law, Mike Stivick, sparring. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to sue that guy. First thing in the morning, I'm going to get myself a good Jew lawyer. <laughs> Archie, do you always have to label people? Why can't you just get a lawyer? Why does that have to be a Jewish lawyer? Because we're not going to sue a neighbor. I'm going to get a guy that's full of hate. <laughs> Just because a guy is sensitive and and, and he's an intellectual and he wears glasses, you make him out a queer. I never said a guy who wears glasses is a queer. A guy who wears glasses is a four-eyes. A guy who is a is a queer. (laughs) What's in the name, anyhow, huh? In my day, nobody went around calling themselves Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, Afro-Americans. We was all Americans. After that, if a guy was a or a it was his own business. Archie's a World War II veteran turned loading dock union worker from Queens, New York. In his eyes, he's no bigot. A bigot spouts mindless prejudice, whereas Archie believes that he's thought things through, that he's simply aware of the rules ordained by nature to make some people sluggish and other people cheats. Besides, to Archie, a racist would only use negative labels, while he's the first to declare that the sharpest lawyers are Jews. At his core, Archie's not prejudiced. He hates everyone. In the complete book of nerds, author Bob Stein lists Archie's wife's name as Dingbat, her nickname as Edith Bunker, and her hobby as taking abuse. Here's Archie and Edith. Sure, good thing. That's you all over. We're always doing good. Eat it the good. You never get mad at nobody. You never holler at nobody. You never swear. No nothing. You're like a saint, Edith. You think it's fun living with a saint? It ain't. It ain't at all. Look at this. You you don't even cheat to win. You cheat to lose. I mean, Edith, you ain't human. That's a terrible thing to say. I'm just as human as you are. Prove you're just as human as me. Do something rotten. 
Norman Lear gave Gene Stapleton the key to Edith's character, that Edith no longer hears what Archie is saying, having tuned out years ago. So it's no wonder Edith shuffles the way she does. Her gears are permanently out of whack from a lifetime of turning the other cheek. Here we are! Ah, yeah. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Bunker. Ah, thanks, Edith. Now, that's all right. I can, I can say, Mr. Davis, Edith, get out of here. Here's Gene Stapleton and Carol O'Connor on the show's secret for success. I feel there was a moral statement made almost every week. But you see, it, number one, it was entertainment. And it was comedy. You can reach people through comedy. We were kidding uh, American attitudes. And uh, the, uh, the artistic term for that is satire. Archie's son-in-law, Mike, is an atheist who renounced his own Catholic baptism long ago. Archie believes in Catholic infant baptism so much that he kidnaps Mike's son, Joey, and baptizes his grandson himself. Now, this here, Lord, is my little grandson, Joey. Now, his parents, they don't care if he's baptized because... His old man is a dopey atheist. So they're going to do it here while we get the chance, you know. I don't want my little grandson growing up without religion in this rotten world of yours. How <laughs> intense a friend of their Lord be. We all know you did the best you could with only six days to get it all together. Now don't worry, Joey, because this ain't going to make you holler, see, like that other thing they done to you. <laughs> This is Joseph Michael Stivik here, a Christian. Joseph Michael Stivik, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now. I hope that took, Lord, because they're going to kill me when I get home. When we come back, more on the story of All in the Family here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of All in the Family. And by the way, it was interesting that this show, had it not been for the repeats in the summer and a second season, would have never been the hit show it was. And I think today, in the current conditions, you'd get one shot and you'd be out. So there was something about those old days and sticking with an act and an artist that really allowed folks to develop. Let's return to the story of All in the Family. Although claiming to be a Christian, Archie's God and his theology are made in Archie's image. All over the world, they celebrate the birth of that baby. And everybody gets time warp and wait. Now, if that ain't proof that he's the son of God, then nothing is. <laughs> he made us all one true religion, ain't it? Christians. She named after his son, Christian. <laughs> well, Christ, for sure. I never thought of that. 
Here's Archie and Sammy Davis Jr. I think that, I mean, if God had meant us to be together, he'd have put us together. Well, look what he'd done. He put you over in Africa, he put the rest of us in all the white countries. Well, you must have told him where we were because somebody came and got us. Archie's patriotism and American history are also made in his image. That ain't the American way, buddy. No, sorry. Listen here, Professor. You're the one that needs an American history lesson. You don't know nothing about Lady Liberty. Standing there in the hub with her torch on high, screaming out to all the nations in the world, send me your poor, your deadbeats, your filthy. <laughs> and all the nations sent them in here. They come swarming in like ants. Your Spanish PRs from the California. Your Japs, your Chinamen, your Crouch and your Heaves, and your Lincoln Spanish. And they're all free to live in their own separate sections. Where they feel safe and they bust your head if you go in there. That's what makes America great, buddy. Chicago-born Mike Stivick married Archie's daughter, Gloria, who works full-time while her husband is enrolled in college full-time. Mike is a jobless, peace-marching sociology major of heavily left-wing persuasion. And they both live with Archie and Edith in Queens. Mike's friends frequently seem to appreciate Gloria more than he does. Indeed, in many ways, he treats Gloria just as Archie treats Edith, with the difference that maybe he'll kiss her in the living room. Mike is of Polish descent, sports long hair and a parted Prince Valiant cut and a mustache, which Rob Reiner grew at 24 to look old enough to get the part of Mike. Something, Mr. Bunker. At first, I thought I misjudged you, and I was right. I did misjudge you. You're a lot more ignorant than I thought. Say, did you hear what he called me ignorant? Well, let me tell you something. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but you are one dumb polo. The jobless Mike doesn't consider that Archie has lived firsthand a life he only reads about in sociology books. Ideas. Oh, from the College of Hard Knocks, sonny boy. I've been everywhere the grass grows green. I've seen everything there is to see. I know people. The reason you don't know nothing about people is you always got your big mouth open. You're never willing to listen to nobody. How do you do, sir? May I have a moment of your time? No. <laughs> the relationship between Archie and Mike was written by Norman Lear to reflect his relationship with his own father. In fact, Lear's father also referred to Norman as dead from the neck up, an expletive which Lear has Archie hurling at Mike as early as the first episode. Let me tell you something, Mr. Bunker. No, let me tell you something, Mr. Stivic. You are a meathead. (laughs) I am meathead. Dead from the neck up. Meathead. What Archie would love to see, most of all, is Mike working. So... Adding insult to injury, when Mike inherits money, he decides to donate it to George McGovern's presidential campaign instead of toward repaying Archie, who has been subsidizing his lifestyle, and then pontificates that Archie doesn't do enough for his fellow man. And since Archie doesn't choose to give more of his money away, 
Mike advocates a socialist system that will call him nasty names and give it away on his behalf. But through all of the wincing and laughter, we also learn something. We learn how to be less hateful and bigoted towards those who are hateful and bigoted. The episode Two's a Crowd chronicles the events of Archie and Mike getting locked in a storeroom overnight. When escape seems futile, the two turn to sharing a bottle and a large blanket as the episode slowly turns into an incredibly honest, personal look at who these two men are. This episode was Carol O'Connor's favorite. Here's a clip. Did you ever think that, that possibly... Your, your, your father just might be wrong? Wrong, my old man? Don't be stupid, my old man. Let me tell you about him. He was never wrong about nothing. Yes, he was, Arch. I... My old man used to call people the same things as your old man. But I always knew he was wrong. So was your old man. No, he was. Yes, he was. You your wasn't. father was wrong. Sir? Your father was wrong! Don't tell me my father was wrong. Let me tell you something. Father who made you wrong, your father, the breadwinner of the house there, the man who goes out and busts his butt to keep a roof over your head, and clothes on your back, you call your father wrong. Hey, hey, your father, your father, that's the man that comes home bringing you candy. Father is the first guy to throw a baseball to you and take you for walks in the park, holding you by the hand. My father held me by the hand away. My father had a hand on him now. I tell you, he busted that hand once and he busted her on me. Teach me to do good. <laughs> my father, he shoved me in a closet for seven hours. Teach me to do good. Cause he loved me. He loved me. Don't be looking at me. Yeah. Let me tell you something. You're supposed to love your father. Because your father loves you. And how can any man that loves you tell you anything that's wrong? As Rob Reiner's father, Carl, remarked, a few would deny all in the family reshaped the face of television. For years, Every new sitcom on the air was either liberated by or reacting to it. It's the Jeffersons, Archie. Who are the Jeffersons? Oh, wait a minute. Hold (laughs) You don't mean them new people that moved in down the front? Yeah, Lionel's family. They're really very nice people, Archie. Oh, yeah, very nice. They're wonderful people. They're lovely people, but they are also colored people. Better hold it there, Daddy. Now, listen, little girl. Been around a lot of places. I've done a lot of things. But there's one thing Archie Bunker ain't never going to do, and that's break bread with no...
Within a few years of its debut in 1971, All in the Family, together with its spin-offs and godchildren, The Jeffersons, Maud, Good Times, and Sanford and Son, reached 120 million Americans, more than half the nation's population. All in the Family frequently earned the accolade of national theater, and its best scripts fall not an iota short of national literature, while Archie has joined the pantheon of American folk heroes. For his portrayal of Archie Bunker, Carol O'Connor earned more awards than any other actor ever received for a single TV characterization. When the Guinness Book of World Records recognized All in the Family as commanding TV's highest advertising rates, the series became known as the Super Bowl of sitcoms and Archie as the most expensive racist on television. Any topical program runs the danger of quickly becoming dated. All in the Family escaped that fate. So strong is the story, so real are the people, that the episodes work even when occasional references elude the audience. It is why Archie's chair, Edith's chair, and Archie's beer can occupy a place of honor on display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. They are as much a part of our national heritage as Abe Lincoln's stovepipe hat and George Washington's wooden teeth. All in the Family was recorded on tape before a live audience. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that as always, Greg. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. So many stories about our nation's past our arts, our culture. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Stories.